This is History West Midlands. Groups of young evacuees standing on railway stations with gas masks and cardboard suitcases have become an iconic image of wartime Britain, but their histories have eclipsed those of women whose domestic lives were affected. In her new book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War, University of Worcester historian and author Professor Maggie Andrews explores the effects of this unparalleled interference in the lives of women, looking at the impact on their everyday experience and on ideas of femininity and domesticity. She shows that evacuation changed views of motherhood forever. In this programme, Professor Andrews tells History West Midlands publisher Mike Gibbs the stories of some of these women. To begin with, Maggie, could we define the size and scope and the planning that went into the whole programme of evacuation, which was, as I understand it, unique? In the run-up to the Second World War, there was a real anxiety, a sense of dread about what aerial bombardment would result in, the numbers of deaths, the level of hysteria and panic it would produce. And so from the mid-1930s, there has been planning to remove children and vulnerable people from areas of danger. This is central government planning, this is local government planning, voluntary organisations involved in it, and they have in their mind the removal of literally millions of people. The 1930s, I think, in some senses, becomes a, a decade of dread, of fear about another war. Now, there's a lot of things that input into that. There is the memory of the First World War and the bombing and the bombing of London, the bombing of some schools in London. There are the images that are coming on the newsreel when people go to the cinema of the Spanish Civil War and the horrendous bombing of Guernica or the bombing in Madrid. There's a real sense of dread surrounding aerial bombardment. In 1932, Stanley Baldwin, as Prime Minister, tells the House of Commons there is nothing that can be done to stop bombers getting through. I think it is well also for the man in the street to realise that there is no power on earth that can protect him from being bombed. Whatever people may tell him, the bomber will always get through. So I think there is a really strong sense in people's minds that disaster will occur. And the disaster is about the physical damage that will be done, the people who will be injured, but the infrastructure that will be damaged, and indeed they're right on that, but also that there will be mass hysteria. Um, there is a sense that people will go hysterical. Lots of psychologists are writing about it. They'll go hysterical, they'll hear the bombing and that will be it. That London will be gridlocked by hysterical people. And to be fair, I mean, there was an air raid siren on the first day. It turned out to be a, a mistake. And there was, you know, a sense of panic was created by that. People were in a state of absolute anxiety over bombing and what it would do to them. So when war was actually declared, in your view... How well organised, how strong were these plans? The plans were pretty strong, really, by the Munich crisis in 1938. However, there was a, a fundamental flaw in the plans, that the plans were designed for large-scale evacuation, but evacuation was voluntary. So they were unable to know how many people 
would actually be evacuated. But they planned and had to plan for every child and every pregnant mother and ill person to be able to be evacuated. But in reality, that didn't happen. The plans were carefully worked out. They had divided the country into different areas, areas of danger, obviously London, but places like Portsmouth, for instance, a naval base, or Birmingham, a big industrial base. So points of danger, areas that were clearly, in their view, safe. They got that a little wrong, so Plymouth and Bristol turned out to be not that safe, Um, and areas that were neutral. And there was a lot of dispute about it. There was a lot of moving around about it over time. But they had divided the country in that way. Those areas which were considered to be safe had had to do very careful surveys about what homes they'd got, what facilities they'd got. They'd been given by the government figures of people that they should find space for. They had carefully, at the beginning of 1939, gone round surveying houses Volunteers had gone into houses, counted the numbers of rooms, taken away from the total number of rooms in the house, the number of people in the house, and whatever was left was the number of people they could accommodate. So when the number of people who turned up for evacuation were not what was expected, so some parents could make their minds up, some changed their minds at the last minute, you name it, then the people in London who were planning it, or in the big cities like Manchester, Birmingham, they started changing their carefully laid plans of this bus is going here, this train is going here, and just shunting them to fill up the trains into other places. And the result was that despite all this careful laid planning, and lots of careful laid planning in the local areas and welcoming committees sorted out, that those who turned up bore no relationship to what was expected. So you've got places that were expecting, you know, a boarding school of boys suddenly got large numbers of five-year-olds. Uh, you've got places that were expecting a mixture from a young junior school, suddenly got a whole herd of pregnant mothers. And you've got places like Poor Stone in Staffordshire that for two weeks waited with its biscuits and its drinks and its welcoming committee and absolutely nobody turned up at all. So there was this really odd mixture of how it actually turned out. With the best will in the world and the best of intentions behind it, it went a little haywire. And at the end of four or five days, the fact that they had moved one to two million children, mothers, (laughs) pregnant women, all sorts of people across the country in itself is quite a feat. How it worked on the ground in those various different places and the level of chaos that ensued leaves something to be desired and caused some of the trauma that was to go on for some time. Can you give us an insight into what sort of discussions were taking place in the family prior to the decision to evacuate their children or not? I think in 1939, you get one set of discussions because it's a theoretical thing in 1939. It's a fear. But there is a sense that it won't be for very long. That's the first thing, because they don't think this bombing will go on for very long. Some people don't think it will really happen. So like in 1938, when some children were evacuated and then came back again, they think maybe it'll all be a false alarm. But there seem to be a lot of different discussions going on. There does seem to be a level of tension around about it. So you get in some of the oral histories descriptions of children being aware that there's a lot of discussions going on in quiet, whispered corners that stop the minute they come into the room. Children being aware of their parents very upset. Some children saying the first time they ever saw their mothers cry was when the letter came home from the school. Some that there is difference of opinion between the parents. And some where there is a sort of fatalistic 
position which is taken all through the war of, if we're going, we'll all go together. So, you know, it's best to keep the family together rather than have anyone go away. Others, there is a careful negotiation around about how it can be managed. So sometimes the mother volunteers to go with the school as part of it. Very often, though, there is a real split and they avoid that because what's going on is the managing of the whole family. And maybe there's older children who are working, maybe there's a husband who's working. It's how are we going to manage it? Which ones are we going to send? Are we going to send the ones who are this age but not that age? Would they prefer to go with their school? So a lot of negotiation appears to go on, but often behind closed doors or in secret areas so that the children are not really aware. And even when they've made their mind up, a lot of them change their minds. And did the children have a say in this or not? Sometimes the children did, and you get some descriptions of children thinking it's greatly exciting. And all their mates are going, so they want to go, and they're going to the countryside, and you get some lovely stories of people encouraging them to see it as desirable and mothers doing their best to make them want to go, talking to them about, you know, you're going to be with sheep and pigs and what have you, and it's all going to be great fun. It's going to be like a little holiday. A lot of teachers who are enthusiastically trying to encourage them in that way. So some of the children are going very, very excitedly, and I think more so than the poor parents who are finding it quite a difficult decision to make. I mean, it's a tortuous decision to make. War was actually declared on the 3rd of September 1939, but I hadn't recognised that evacuation actually was already well underway by the time that declaration was broadcast in the famous broadcast by Neville Chamberlain. I am speaking to you from the Cabinet Room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. At the point that that broadcast goes out, children are already evacuated and spread across the country. The fear that bombing will come immediately, that war starts, is so great that they have to move the children in advance. So they have Operation Pied Piper, as it's called, this process of getting them out as fast as possible, and it begins before the war. The evacuation doesn't just involve children, it involves mothers, it involves those who are ill, it involves pregnant women on special trains full of pregnant women, all of these different groups. But they do begin in the main with the children and the school children at the beginning. So they are the first ones. And you get some mothers who are about a week behind their children being evacuated. So it's a slow but steady process, but it's the children they pushed out first and most speedily. And that's happened two days in advance of the war. When war started on the 3rd of September, there was this view it was going to be very, very quickly cataclysmic. But in fact, not a lot happened. We entered the period of the so-called phony war. How did that affect those who have decided already and actioned sending their children away? It was massive, the effect of the phony war, because you had all this disruption, all this chaos, all this trauma for both the foster families and the people who sent their children away. And then actually, the danger doesn't seem so real after all. There is no bombing. (laughs) 
um, they're all just sitting there. And that goes on for quite a while. Now, what happens is that slowly when parents maybe visit their children, sometimes they bring them back with them. And in the period running up to Christmas, when many of the children came home for Christmas, anyway, you get a massive sort of leakage back into the areas of danger. And Christmas is absolutely decisive in that. So they come home for Christmas and many of them just do not go back. So by the time you've reached January of 1940, you've got 80% or so of the children are back in their families in what you would term danger areas. And it doesn't seem so real to everybody. But that was about to change. That was to change massively. In 1940, slowly but steadily, you get spasmodic bits of bombing. You also get, slowly, as 1940 progresses towards the summer, the horrendous news from Europe of one country after another falling, of the growing fears of invasion that there is in the middle of 1940, as basically the German forces get closer and closer. You also get the stories and propaganda films which show women in Belgium or Holland talking about how they wished they'd evacuated their children earlier, how they couldn't get them away in time when the quick invasion happened. So you get a slow increase of bombing and you get slowly increasing fears of invasion. And that begins to shift things over the summer of 1940 and evacuation begins again. And then, of course... The reality of bombing, which really starts in earnest with the Blitz in September of 1940, changes everything. The sudden shock of how awful it is, of the trauma that children will face, whether they're in shelters or even they're coming out of shelters and they're seeing these horrendous, horrendous images of bits of people everywhere and the the aftermath of bombing, but also how frightened the children are many of them are. There's there's descriptions of one mother in Birmingham who hadn't wanted her child evacuated and then just how white she went with fear during the bombing, she changed her mind. That was it. The child had to go. So I think as the reality of war bites, then suddenly people change their mind again and they respond in a variety of different ways. Some have their children evacuated, some of them send them back to where they were. By 1940, the government will pay for billeting if you billet with somebody you know and do it, arrange it privately. So suddenly sending them to granny seems like a good solution. Um, all of those things, which seem logical to us, you know, begin to come into the place. So there's a lot of privately organised evacuation. There's more of the government scheme of evacuation. But there is also what I term the people's evacuation. There is this mass flight from areas of bombing as the bombing occurs, where people quite reasonably, it seems to me. They do everything. They load onto trains, buses, cars if they've got them, or on foot. They just run from areas of bombing. And they run not knowing where they're going. And so right round London, for instance, where the railway lines end. Freelance, as opposed to organised evacuees, have arrived in Reading by the hundred. Many are jittery and shell-shocked. They are herded into some large hall to live as best they can. He knows of one cinema thus occupied and says the dirt and stench there are appalling as there are no adequate sanitary arrangements. And how did the local authorities and the voluntary authorities actually cope with this, or didn't they? (laughs) With a level of chaos, it has to be said, you do have a lot of volunteers very involved. The women's 
voluntary service, which has come into operation in 38, just in advance of the war, to do all these sorts of things. They have hostels and centres all over the place. You have them, you have local authorities managing it, you have the WI involved in it. And some towns are almost hysterical. So you get For example, you know, Worcester talks about being completely overrun and it can't cope with any more. The lovely descriptions of Oxford, where the organised evacuees are staying in the colleges. And there are all these lovely Oxford colleges with nappies hanging up across the quads and what have you, um, while the families that have been brought up from Kent are there. But you also have terrible descriptions of things like the big cinemas being turned into hostels temporarily with hundreds and hundreds of women in a dazed and traumatised state with their children around them, sleeping on the floor of these cinemas in gruesome conditions, which Vera Britton describes. Covering the floor beneath upturned velveteen seats of the cinema chairs, disorderly piles of mattresses, pillows, rugs and cushions indicate pitches staked out by different evacuated families. Many of the women, too dispirited to move, lie wearily on the floor with their children beside them in the fetid air, though the hour is 11am and a warm sun is shining cheerfully on the city streets. Between the mattresses and cushions, the customary collection of soiled newspapers and ancient apple cores. By 1943, the fear of invasion had disappeared. The major bombing of the Blitz was over. What happened then to the evacuees? It was mixed, and it was a very tortuous decision again to make. By 1943, invasion fears, yes, they're definitely over, so some do begin to seek their way back to the areas from which they've come on the south coast. The bombing, in terms of the Blitz, is over, so you've not got bombing every single night, but bombing is still going on, and it's spasmodic and random, and sometimes it's during the day, so we do have schools that are bombed, for instance, in 43. But you still have that movement back, slowly but steadily and in varied ways, sometimes with disastrous consequences. You have some of the children who've been evacuated abroad, privately, begin to come back. The numbers of evacuees goes down again. So in 1944, in the summer of 1944, the unmanned bombs begin. The doodlebugs, the V1, then the V2s. They go on actually falling until April of 1945 and they hit the area really of the south from just above London right down to the coast and they're completely random where they hit from urban to rural. They cause an enormous amount of damage and they frighten the living daylights out of people so it is not surprising that we have about a million evacuating again, mothers with their children, children on their own, just moving themselves up the country. Places that have been evacuating their children earlier are now taking evacuees in. So people in Birmingham, for instance, are welcoming in relations who who are escaping from the unmanned bombs in 1944, whereas previously they'd been having their children evacuated. And they just move up the Midlands and beyond. And then as we move to the end of the Second World War, when does evacuation per se stop? When do the children come home? The government return of children doesn't start until the very end of the war, or at least the end of victory in Europe. So that doesn't happen until 45. But of course, parents have unofficially begun bringing their children home. They just have to do it at their cost if they do it before that. But slowly but steadily, 
depending upon where they are and what part of the country, from 43 onwards, there has been this trickle of people going home. And by the time you hit 45, that's massively increased. And then you have the end of the war in Europe, and then the government begins a process of returning them. And it, you know, again, has trains and a very complex system to get them back where they came from. That is not as straightforward as it seems, because lots of people have moved, lots of people have been bombed out. Actually, there are heartrending stories of children whose parents can't be found. There are some who actually prefer to stay where they are, and a number are adopted. There are people who go home and then feel so alienated from where they return that they go back to where they were evacuated all their Family life is never quite the same again afterwards. But it is a slow process from, depending on where you've come from, the end of 43 through to 45, that process of evacuating them. Though there are still a few tens of thousands of children in 46 that they haven't quite managed to get back to where they should be. Maggie, I was fascinated by your new book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War. It shines a spotlight on aspects of evacuation which I'd certainly never heard of before or never knew about. And it focuses on the experience of mothers. Why? The experience of mothers in coping with evacuation is one of the untold stories to me and is what my book has very much been about. You have the mothers who are going to have their children evacuated and have to make that tortuous decision to separate from their children and send them away to, usually they don't even know what part of the country they're going to, let alone who will be looking after them. But they feel they have to do that to keep their children safe. You have the mothers who are frightened for the welfare of their children, but either because they've been evacuated in 39 and they're, they're anxious about it, they go with their children. They think, no, the children have to be taken to safety, but we must take them ourselves. We have to go with them. We have to be helpers at school. We have to go and find rented accommodation there, whatever. You have an enormous number of people who are going to host these children in their homes. Evacuation is a domestic thing. There are some boarding schools built, but in the main, it is taking over ordinary homes for government use. The Fabian writer, Margaret Cole, talks about it as nationalising hundreds and thousands of women. They are turning all these women in reception areas into government servants, in a sense, without choice, because billeting was compulsory. If you attempted not to comply with it, you could be taken to court, you could be fined, and so forth. So you've got those. And then you've got a number of other women who are involved, of course, as helpers with the WVS, as teachers as assistants or as social workers all across the country become involved in it. So it is very much an experience that's about women and about mothers and motherhood, and it changes the nature of motherhood. And Maggie, you're not only a noted historian, but you're also a mother. When you have been doing this research, how have you felt about the mothers that you've read about and also their experiences? To me, it's been one of the most emotional areas of historical research. Not often do I cry in archives, but sometimes I do when looking at this material because I think the heartrending decision that everybody involved has had to make, the doing things for what you hope is the good of your child, 
which you, you normally would never do, the giving up control and responsibility in order to keep them safe. But also, I have to say, as somebody, you know, couldn't really get to the end of a birthday party with my children without really being irritated by at least two or three children. The story of these women who looked after other people's children for year upon year, with very little thanks and not very much money, um, you know, one certificate from the king is not going to make it all all right. I'm lost in admiration for them, actually. So I'm also aware how many children were kept safe by the mothering, not just of your own children, but all these other children. That impresses me beyond belief. Maggie, thank you. Thanks. In other programmes in this series, Professor Andrews reveals the experiences of mothers who waved goodbye to their children as they were evacuated, those who left their homes and families to travel with their young children, and of the women who became foster mothers, sometimes for years. You can listen to these often heart-rending stories in our free app, HWM On Air, in the iStore, or find them on our website, www.historywm.com along with hundreds of other films and podcasts, all for free. Professor Maggie Andrews' book, Women and Evacuation in the Second World War, published by Bloomsbury Academic, is available in bookshops and from Amazon. (laughs) 